out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, God, you should know by now. We love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Michael Zilka, the mind, the brain behind Z Records. Um, who were, yes, mid-70s to late, well, early 80s, mid-80s, New York label that featured such people as Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, Was, Was Not, The Waitresses, Lydia Lunch, Kid Creole, John Kell, James Chance, I could go on, but frankly, Mr. Shankdale, I'm a bit bored now. So look, this is the interview after several minutes, quite a few minutes actually, of casual chat that I've edited out. Um, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Michael, tell us more, tell us now. So I started, I started by buying film soundtracks. Um, I loved, I loved film soundtracks because if you remember, this was pre-video, so yeah. Um, if you went to see Lawrence of Arabia twice, and you bought a copy of um, the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and you bought the program which they sold, you know, which had pictures in it, and you listened to the soundtrack, you could relive the film. Yes. So in your mind now, the Seven Pillars of Wisdom didn't mean a lot to me when I was eight years old. But I still had a copy. And, and you know, I could have, I, I could imbibe it. And, um, and so I would relive films that way. So I started with soundtracks. And then at about, I guess, 10 or 11, I started becoming really interested in pop music. So it would be 1965, 1966. When um, when there was, you know, flower power and things like that going on. So um, that's when I really started getting singles. Um, I, I had a year, I was in the French school system and switching to the English one. So I had a year when I was in a crammer to sort of be re-indoctrinated since every victory was now a defeat and vice versa. And um, we were given... Um, lunch money every day because this crammer didn't have anywhere to, um, you know, didn't didn't have any food or anything. And instead of eating, I would buy a single every other day. Right. Good and um, I would go to Harlequin Records, which was um, in oh, in Pimlico, and I would see what the latest singles were. And I was obsessed with French pop music as well. So. Um, it would be things like Jeff Beck's High Ho Silver Lining, and there was someone called Antoine, and The Move, and basically every everything, and and the Motown breakup stories. But anyway, David Bowie when Space Oddity came out, I saw, and then by the then I went to um, I went to a boarding school in the middle of London which was great because we were allowed, if we'd done our homework, we could get passes in the evening to go and see plays and music. And so, which I would not have had probably if I was at home. Yes. So, and there was also a dustman's entrance and I could sneak out and go to midnight at the Lyceum 
and just sort of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, so I could go to midnight at the Lyceum and basically be terrified all night that, you know, I was going to get caught because all we'd done was sort of put a pillow, um, you know, over our bed in case a monitor came and checked. But, you know, and then you would see things like the Faces first concert, um, Coliseum. I, you know, I saw the Mothers of Invention repeatedly. I saw David Bowie at the Country Club right when Men Who, The Man Who Sold the World came out in a dress. And I remember Rick Wakeman saying that he had gotten to grade eight or whatever the highest grade was in piano playing, wow. um, classical piano playing. But then there he was. And um, I always knew what was going to happen next. I was really good at it because yes. um, I, I guess I read the papers, the music papers, and then I didn't have any other life, basically. And a lot of my friends who were obsessed with music, you know, were sort of short or bullied or, you know, just they retreated into music. And that's what I did. So yeah. then my identity was knowing a lot about music. Just and I became increasingly interested in, in sort of more avant-garde rock music yes because your background because i didn't know much about this until very recently it's quite interesting isn't it your parents were quite entrepreneurial though weren't they and they yeah. and sort of moved yeah. in probably circles that a lot of people never moved in probably especially during that period so did that have how how did they affect you well they didn't affect me at all except when i was 11 um I had a stepmother who would take me to the Savile Theatre to see Joe Boyd's incredible concerts where you would have Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band, Tim Rose, who wrote Morning Dew, and Pig Floyd all on one bill. So my parents, I, and we would walk down the King's Road with my dad, you know, on the weekends we had with him. And my parents probably affected me more and my stepfather was in the labor government and they probably affected me more in terms of theater right and things like and being completely bilingual um also made a difference because it opened up you know that much more in terms of sort of theater film and music yes so they were very bohemian business people weren't they well, they were no. I wouldn't say they were bohemian. Um, the Incredible they, String Band. The Incredible String Band is quite out there. No, but they. She took me because I wanted to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. They weren't bohemian at all. But, um, but you know, a stepmother wants to get on with her stepchildren, right? Yes. And well, so, what can she do? But what better than to take the. You know, and they enjoyed it when we went to see the Rolling Stones. I remember taking my dad to see Cream at the Savile Theatre. And he thought it was great, but he wondered about that guy who didn't move at all and just, you know, leaned against the amp. So, <laughs> but he thought Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce were tremendous. Yes. Because they, they bounced around a lot. Yeah, Eric could do better. But did they, did they sort of not have kind of like dreams that you were going to become, you take over the, because the business was mother care, wasn't it? Yeah, the business was mother care. And 
the thing is, by the time I finished university, mother care was built. And I didn't think I would ever have an identity if I, you know, if I was there, it would always be my dad's business. Whereas the two businesses that we eventually built, up, built together after my time in the record business, they were ours together because he was in Los Angeles and he, I, I was here. And they were a, an oil and gas exploration business and then a wind energy business. And they were really ours together where I, I would never have felt. When Mother Care was being built, it was very exciting. Because, you know, we would, on a Saturday morning, we'd get up early, we'd, uh, we'd be in Newcastle by nine, and then, you know, be driven back, visiting stores all along the way, kn knowing all the manageresses. I would work in the stockroom at holidays. That was really exciting. But by, in 1972, when I went to university, my dad had, it had gone public. And it was never the same after that. So I didn't want to, it, it didn't, I mean, I'm very, very happy that I ended up working with my father, but it was in better circumstances. Yes. Because I did want, I did want to feel things were mine. The other thing is I didn't like England anymore. Well, when I got to Oxford, I stopped liking England because I didn't feel English. Right. I felt like there was another form of Englishness. Yeah. That I wasn't part of. Was it the aristocracy that you... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I'd never be part of it. And they seemed to have the most glamorous time. <laughs> and so it was okay as long as you were funny and clever. And, um, and actually my knowledge of music helped because, you know, I... I mean, I, you know... I could take friends to see Captain Beefheart's first ever concert at the Albert Hall when someone, I think, stripped to, or did a fan dance to Swan Lake, um, you know, at the beginning of it. I mean, I, mean I, I always knew that. That was always what I loved. I, I was meticulous about filing my records. I, I was one of those people who knew who'd written every song. You know, I, I was... A music nerd, and I still love music nerds. Yes. And Do I have friends who are music nerds still. Yeah. Are you, when you look back at yourself then, were you a bit amazed how obsessed you were with music? Because normally when, and this is a bit of a sweeping statement, but when people have got quite a lot of options open in life and a lot of avenues, they're a little bit diluted. But when you've got that desperation, I know this is really quite a sweeping thing about, you know, the working class kids from the estate, they get into music, they play records mm. all day. You know, Jimi Hendrix played his guitar all day, even, you know, from accounts that he would go to the toilet with it around his neck still, and he would do it. So, but there was not much, there wasn't plan B, was there? Like David Bowie was obsessed with music. There wasn't a plan B. Lemmy, right. Lemmy from Motorhead, you know, was like music, no plan B probably death really so it wasn't thank god he was in a band so so with you you probably had opp opportunities but then looking back do you sort of amaze that you were that obsessed you didn't want just the greatest hits of the Beatles well well there was there was something quite specific going on which is that I was really short I was bullied a lot and puberty didn't come until my second year at Oxford so to have an identity when everyone else was going out with girls and stuff. Yes. You know, I didn't have that. 
And I have friends from other public school kids I know who had the same experience. And they too. Um, and, and it isn't like, you know, it's interesting what you said about the council estate because music wasn't everything for me because I also loved theater. Um, so, and, and I, you know, my first job was reviewing plays at the Village Voice in New York, because I worked on ISIS, which was um, the magazine at Oxford. But um, but I always knew, even I arrived in New York in the summer of 1975, I found CBGBs within three days. <laughs> you know, I was friends with talking heads within two months, three months, and they were just starting out. And then but the way I got into the record business as opposed to um you know, as opposed to just being a fan was um writing about it and then I met Chris Blackwell through a friend. Right. And we went to see Bob Marley in the spring of nineteen seventy six and then I sat next to him at dinner afterwards. And I started asking him why he hadn't done better at selling John Cale and Nico. And, you know, did he just not care about them? Why did he put no effort into them? And he was sort of slightly nonplussed. But I said, you know, you are my heroes. You know, you are what Armand Ertigan is to you. You are to me. <laughs> and um, But at the same time, I was asking him about all these records that hadn't sold of his. And he said, well, are there any good bands around in New York? And I said, well, there's this band Talking Heads. They were still a trio at the time. And, um, you know, so he, he arranged to go see them with me at CBGB's. And he brought Robert Palmer. And I brought Andy Warhol, who I'd met, so that because um, he liked English people, so that um, young English kids boys and girls and um and then talking heads went back to robert palmer's studio to um to jam but chris didn't sign them and then when fear of music came out he really regretted it mm. and so the next time i liked a band which was not talking heads it was the contortions you know he gave me the money to produce them and meanwhile, I'd met John Cale. I'd interviewed John Cale for Interview Magazine, and he and I had started a small label, Spy Records, which was not a success, because John, who has now been, I think he's probably now been straight for almost 40 years, uh, maybe 35 years, was a methadrine, a speed addict. And that's like the worst drug to work with someone because <clears throat> you never get there. You know, you, you always want more. So um, <clears throat> so, um, so that didn't work, but we made some records I really liked. Yes. And then, <clears throat> and then I ended up with Chris and Chris financed me. And he financed, I spoke to him this morning. I speak to him, you know, at least once or twice a month. Nice. He's one of my closest friends. Excellent. Well, God, that's a good history. Yeah. Now, just just slightly, did you finish your degree at Oxford University? Oh, yeah. That oh, you've yeah. Been, what did you do? What was your degree in? French literature. Right. Yeah. So then you went to America. The then I went straight. I took the first boat because I had to bring my records and my books. And, um, yeah, and then I was at the 
village voice for a year. And then I had, I did a training program at Condé Nast and um, then went into the record business. Yes. And interesting. So, so the punk experience was all happening with CBGB's, the Mud Club. And... Yeah, but they were less punk. Well, the Mud Club is later. CBGB's had, um, I mean, there, there was punk because there was the Ramones. And I remember seeing them at the roundabout in London. And that was when I really became aware of punk. But if you think about it, talking heads and television and the dictators, they weren't necessarily what you would call punk then. No. You know, it was that they were part of a continuum from the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and the Modern Lovers, who I did not know until I went to New York and then Tina Weymouth played me with Modern Lovers. Right. Yes, this is true. So, so did you... So, no, and I was going to say, did you sort of feel that there was some, a, a musical movement happening during that sort of period of 75? Absolutely. Totally. And um, it was, again, it was people I could relate to. You know, it was, it was kind of nerdy. Even the even the Ramones are kind of nerdy. I mean, I remember, um, I remember my lawyer Owen Epstein, who died, going to he was he represented the Ramones and going to Joey Ramones for dinner, and they served him this wonderful sort of um, you know Italian sort of big sort of pasta dinner, you know, and it was very very touching. I mean. It was, it, it wasn't angry, it was, um, and it wasn't theatre yes. in the way that it was in England. It was much more organic and people were themselves. Did you, um, did you sort of find, and sort of curious, because I've sort of done quite a few interviews with, I suppose, people who were part of that sort of um, New York punk scene. Was the New York punk scene to you quite different to the London, England punk or British punk scene? I think so, because, um, <clears throat> so I had a friend at university called Mary Harron, and who you should really talk to about this if you're interested. And, you know, she went on to direct, I shot Andy Warhol and um, mm. American Psycho and a whole bunch of films. But she was the first person to come back with a whole stack of singles and play them for me and um, things like the adverts and it was it felt much more cohesive as a scene than the, stylistically than than the New York scene was I mean yeah. the New York scene if you think of if you listen to television now and you listen to the live 12 and a half minute little Johnny Jewel it's an amazing thing and um you know, there was didn't seem to be anything like that in England. I yeah. mean, the Stranglers were the more pop incarnation, but I, I think the American scene was more about music, and it hadn't, it hadn't cut its psychedelic roots in the same way. Yes. 
Did you ever sort of, because you mentioned Rick Wakeman, did you, did you, I would imagine people at Oxford, Cambridge, would have gone into the prog rock world and like, yes, Genesis, Barclay, James Harvest, Wishbone Ash. Did you ever sort of... Well, did you ever when, I was at, when I was at Westminster, um, I liked yes for about two years. Right. But then, no, that wasn't me. No, then it was the... We borrowed the first Velvet Underground album from the local library. And we you know, went into the music room, which had an incredible stereo at night and played it really, really loud. And it changed everything. Yeah. And this is, and this is, this would be 19, I didn't hear it till 1968. So I was 13 when I heard it. Yeah. And it changed everything. Like, I mean, I still love, there are things I still love. I still totally love the Bee Gees from that. Um, you know, New York mining disaster and words and Massachusetts. I I love them because they were sort of they were you know that they, they were th- these amazing like mini operas with stories. I yeah. I watched the Bee Gees documentary two weeks ago. I can't believe they went into the studio without lyrics. They were so confident that they could write lyrics on the spot. I guess because there were three of them. I mean. As someone who always, when he made his records, you know, was focused on the lyrics and the lyrics, you know, making sense in verse one, leading into verse two, and then a denouement at the end of, you know, the song. Um, it's just so bold to me to go into a studio without lyrics. It would be amazing. Yes, it is, it is yeah. quite extraordinary, especially with so much pressure to, to build. So when you were sort of, because obviously you, you're sort of going from sort of quite extreme scenes in the UK to then New York, from, from sort of reports is that New York was quite sort of a, a bit of a wasteland at that stage with sort of, you know, very cheap accommodation, housing, oh, yeah. a lot of drugs. I mean, how did you sort of, uh, yes, navigate that kind of vibe? Did you sort of think, oh, blimey, perhaps I quite like the cosy England lifestyle? Not in the slightest. Never. Not for a minute. And, you know, England had a lot of drugs, too. Yes. But it not, did. Yeah. But, but it, had, it, it had a... Well, it depends what circles you moved in. But, um, but there were... Uh, I, I mean, there, there, there was quite a bit of heroin in England. Yeah. But not, um, not on the same scale as New York, though. But it doesn't matter what scale it's on. If it's there, it's there. Yeah, this is true. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't affect you whether people in Inverness are getting high. <laughs> <laughs> Does it? No, this is true. <laughs> the question is, do you know where to get it and do you want it? Yes. And you know, and will you keep taking it if it doesn't make you throw up, or will you accept that you're getting used to it and you should have yes. a break? So yes, is, so no. I, so, <laughs> yes. So when did you start to have ideas of forming or starting a record label? I mean, I guess it was because your your experience with Chris and then also John. Yeah, it was, it was Chris and John. I mean there is this one thing where in 1972 in August I went to see Larry Coriel at the Gaslight in um, 
on Bleecker Street, I think the gaslight was. And this guy opened up for him and he was on acoustic guitar and um, piano. And, you know, when they shone a flashlight at him, he sort of put his arms up like this. And these words spilled out of him. And I found him quite extraordinary. And I called my dad and said, you know, rather than going to university, I'd like to book the Queen Elizabeth Hall for a month and put this guy in it. And I knew nothing about how the record business operated at the time. And I said, and I'm certain something will happen. And when I read John Hammond's autobiography, I discovered that that was Bruce Springsteen's audition night for him. Right. At the gaslight. So I did, I did see that and think this is really extraordinary. But I didn't think of going into the record business after that. I, I thought, thought I'd write about it and... and um, but until I met John and then Chris, and I'm so such close friends with John still. Yes, I remember a few years ago listening to his interview he did on a, I think it was the World Service, the BBC Hard Talk, it was called, and he yeah. talked about his childhood and some of the experiences he had. I think it was with a a music teacher, which didn't sound very good either. So um, a lot of people come from sort of quite traumatic backgrounds, don't they? I guess so. Are you, you're obsessed with music? Yes. Very. Do you come from a traumatic background? No, but it's probably escapism. I don't, I don't know what it was that sort of made me so obsessed. But I do remember, this was in the late 60s, I was born in 64, listening to the radio with my mum, who had probably radio too, and it was the work of people like Burt Bacharach and then the Carpenters. They were the people that I can be, remember. And Scylla Black did a song called Step Inside Love. It was a programme, a TV thing called Scylla. Yes. And I remember the drama of this song, and I still thought, wow, that's incredible. I didn't realise it was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Step inside, love. It sounded amazing. Yeah. And from that moment, it was like, I just was like, God, I just I just could listen to music all the time. And luckily, you know, it was Bowie, seeing Bowie and then buying the first, my first single, Space Oddity, which had changes and Velvet Goldmine. And then the album was Changes One with Bowie. And he sort of stayed with me all my life, basically. Yeah, he stayed with me. I was much more affected by his death than Prince's. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I can't believe you're mentioning Scylla. It's so interesting, because I've been talking about Scylla Black with with two music nerd friends, um, one much younger than you and one almost my age. And we were... Because we, we were talking about the Bee Gees documentary, and I said its only flaw is that it doesn't go deeper into Maurice's marriage to Lulu. Because <laughs> that's what I want to know about, because Lulu is such a goddess. And then m my friend James Truman started talking about how, um, you know, how awful Scylla was compared to Lulu. And how, you know, Lulu was the goods and so totally vibrantly alive. And, and you know, but that sort of Scylla was, you know, what his family sort of... Yes. Kind of related to. And then we realised we didn't like anything of Scylla's. And we we think Lulu is the greatest. Well, her version She's... of... Yes. Well, yeah. I remember, um, is it To Sir With Love? To Sir With Love, yeah. Which was amazing. And her version of David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. Was, it's fantastic. Um, which is fantastic. Yeah. But I think you could rediscover a few Scylla songs. I, th I think you won't be disappointed. 
And listen Amazing. to Step Inside Love and that drama of the build up. And then, you know, it was almost there with Kurt Cobain. I just thought there was a, like, wow, you know, soft, hard, you know, rocking. It just, you know, for, okay. for, for a four year old child. But anyway, look, then when did you decide, <laughs> going back to the 70s or forward, um, so when did you decide to call it and start the label for real? Well, when I split up with John Cale. And um, so I started it with someone called Michel Esteban, who was French, who I'd met through John, because on Spy Records, we'd produced a record, a band called Marie et les Garçons, which he represented. And, um, but he turned out to be a crook. I mean, he was a crook before. I knew he was a crook. I knew he'd gone to jail. But, um, you know, for burglary. But I thought he'd reformed, even though his business in France, which was a very successful business, was bootlegging T-shirts from bands <laughs> and s selling them in this sort of incredible emporium in Leal. And it was really, you know, it was a big business. But it was illegal. And um, so I was with him for about a year. And he brought Lizzie Mercier d'Ecloux to the label, who was really great. And um, a band called Casino Music, who were no good. But then we split up. Yes. And then it was just me. And I had... First I had James White and the Blacks, because I had the... I wanted to sign the contortions, but because I hadn't had a label, they didn't know that they wanted to sign with me. So I said, well, anyway, I want to make a disco record with you. Um, so they said, okay, well, you can sign James White and his blacks. And I said, well, I'd rather sign James White and the blacks. <laughs> and so, um, so we made that record. And then as soon, because my idea was that, Disco and punk was so, um, you know, they were at such polar opposites. But my idea was that if you had the right relationship of, of bass to drums, then the weirder the stuff you put over it, the more exciting it would be and the more listenable. Yeah. Well, the more, the more it would survive repeated listening. Because fly robbing fly, you can't listen to over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, at home. So, um, so that was the start. That was my first record, Off White by James White and the Blacks. And did you, at that stage, because there was kind of a lot of indie, indie labels I've done for the 80s. They didn't last particularly long, but they definitely had an ethos. There was definitely a sound. Did you sort of have much of a, with, when you were with, um, was it Michael Esteban? Yeah. Did you sit down and have a sort of a, a plan of what you were going to do in the next? No, no, yeah. no. But what I built was a repertory company. So by having a repertory company, you do have an ethos. In it. Yes. Because um, August Darnell, you know, remixed James White and the Blacks and turned Contort Yourself into a dance hit. He he had Kid Creole and the Coconuts. There was also Don Armando's Second Avenue Wumba Band. He produced Christina. Was not um, all the bands together made the Christmas record, which is very hard to make in June. Yes. In June. Um, 
when it's hot and sweltering in New York. Um, was Not Was worked with Christina. There was Sweet Piax Atkinson. So all the bands, what I had was a repertory company and that's the re... And, and there, was, um, there was my emphasis on lyrics. Yes. And yes. then I think Suicide, I think Alan Vega was influenced by... Um, what he saw I was doing with dance music when he made the first Alan Vega record. Yeah. So, because um, the label, the label does sit there so beautifully within the sort of the narrative of, of music and that sort of period of sort of post-punk and early 80s kind of, I suppose, no wave, new wave scene. You must feel really pleased that, that it has such a sort of chapter within, within the musical sort of story, really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm still friends with all my artists. Yes, which is... So that's, I, I don't know if Dave Robinson could say that. <laughs> <laughs> Stiff Records, yeah. I did an interview Chris, with him. Chris can. Yes, and I think... Chris um, Blackwell can. And I know, I, I sort of, you know, I know Alan McGee's got a good relationship with all his people as well. So yeah. I think most people are fans who just happen to find themselves running a, a record label and did you sort of find you know because it sort of ran into the sort of almost the mid 80s did you begin to feel exhausted with it I mean yes that's exactly the word it it, it was more than exhausted I had lost the plot suddenly from knowing exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it um, once you start selling records and there's a lot of money involved suddenly, you know, people want more hits. Yes. As they pay you more and more for your albums because, um, you know, that's what the contract said. And I became very unhappy then because it was never about making hits. I mean, every record I made, I thought should be a hit. Yeah. I really did. I, I honestly believed that Dream Baby Dream, you know, was a hit single. You know, I guess it is in retrospect. Because <laughs> it's kept selling, right? And Bruce, and Bruce covered it recently as and well. Bruce covered it in that brilliant way. So I always thought everything was going to be a hit. But I never set out to make a hit. Yes. And that's, that's the big difference. And by 84, 85, I was having to make a hit. Also, there were structural problems with the way my label worked because I had to take half the profits because to fund, you know, the rest of it. And when someone has nothing they're perfectly happy to give off, give away half the profits, but then they view you as a tax at a certain point. And they don't appreciate how much you did to make them a hit. Right. And how much ongoing you have to contribute as well. So, um, you know, so my bands left me. And, um, I, I, you know, I would get bought out. Yes. And then Kid Creole were bought, bought me out and then, you know, they, 
they did okay for one more record, but they'd lost the plot. The waitresses bought me out and immediately made a free jazz album, which is what I had I had channeled that sort of free jazz instinct into something more accessible and pop. Yes. And then, you know, they did exactly what they wanted to do, which was brilliant musically. <laughs> but yeah, and so that 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 was an inherent flaw. Yes. In the business model. Did you feel that if you were to survive it, you'd have had to be in a bit more ruthless or hard edge, which wasn't your stuck way of being? It's not it's not just that. It's that in order to stay in it, I would have had to become like Chris Blackwell discovering the next label. Yeah. Because that's that's what he did. He had all the great labels with him at some point, from Virgin to Chrysalis to Stiff. You know, they all went through him at some point. And that's what I would have had to do, and that would have defeated the purpose. Yes. The because I was making records because I wanted to make them, and they were the records I wanted to make, not the records someone else wanted to make. So I had a I had a top five hit in America with a band called The Breakfast Club called Right on Track. And that was that was the end of it. But I kept working with Was Not Was. Yes. Because they appreciated, you know, just how integral I was to the process. And um, and I made a record this year that didn't do anything, but that I thought was brilliant. So I, I can send you a link to it. Oh, that's marvellous. You must have felt very good because I realised back in those days, only 40 years ago, you know, we had those gatekeepers, didn't we? We had the music papers. We had people like John Peel, who was huge. Yeah. And he, he said that you were, um, he said, the best independent record label in the world. You must have felt very chuffed with that comment. Yeah. I mean, because he was my hero. That, that's what I was missing in terms of my musical education. I listened to um, Top Gear every Saturday afternoon. Right. Yes. So uh, he was he was totally central to me. Yes. So, so um, and I was going to say, I mean, when you got to sort of that point where you realised the quote Jim Morrison, the end was there. Did that feel like quite a? Did you sort of wake up one morning thinking, I know what I need to do. I need to sort of finish this label. Not really. What happened was I had a child, I had a daughter, so I had to support her. Um, I knew that I didn't ever want to be twice the age of my artists, which would happen if I stayed in the business. And so, and then my father had made a disastrous investment in this energy company. And so I went down to help him with it. And, um, you know, it, it's it's not like I've um I still I still bicycled every Tuesday. Now it's Friday, but records used to come out Tuesday. I still bicycle to the record shop, you know, every Tuesday and bought the new singles. Yeah. I mean the new albums. So I I, I was still around music and I was around music as a fan and was not was had kept having some hits. And you know, so I, I wasn't disconnected from it. I made a record in 1992, which was the inspiration for this year's, which was um, which I made with Don Was called "A Thousand Points of Night." 
there was this song called Read My Lips. I'll send you links to the two. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and um, you know, and it, that became an ad for the Clinton campaign. And it was on 60 Minutes, which is our big news program. So I mean, I was still able to make records. And I made two records with someone called Ned Sublet, who I really like. So I was still able to do it, but do it as a hobby where it wasn't life and death. Yeah. Although it's still life and death for the artists. And that was the other thing that I liked about the oil business initially is that when you had a dry hole, you'd lost your money, but it was inanimate. You didn't have to explain to John Cale why music for a new society. Well, actually, with John Cale, you didn't have to explain it because it had happened to him before. Yes. But, you know, but with younger artists, you didn't have to explain to them why their brilliant record that you loved so much had not sold. Yes. Because that was very, that that's very painful. Whereas if it's, um, you know, if it's just, if it's just money, however much money it is, uh, and however significant it is, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have the same emotional attachment to it. Yeah. But it's the- not like but the characters you had, I mean, people like Lyd- Lydia Lunch, who I listen to yes. her podcast. I mean, fantastic kind of um, extroverts. Oh, she's fantastic. And, you know, and if you listen to Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and then you listen to Queen of Siam, I, I think that's probably my most alchemical change of all in, in an artist. Because... Um, I saw her as this incredibly sexy torch singer. Yes. Which, listening to Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, that's what I heard. She never did anything quite like it again. No, no. And I did do an interview with a guy from The Mumps who had an amusing story with... Um... Christ- Christian. Hoffman. Yes, with, spelt with a K, yes. yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Was in, um, he was in the first... He was in James White and the Blacks. Amazing character. Because you must have had all those people like Klaus Nomi, Danny Fields, Robert Maplethorpe, obviously Andy Warhol. Did you also get involved with people? Because there was a few like Lee Childers who'd come over to New York with that sort of rockabilly band called the Rockettes. So there was a whole, you know, did you sort of, were you part of that kind of world as well? No, because I was more in the studio. Right. I was in the studio a lot and I was, I was pretty shy and I was, you know, also fairly druggy, as were most of my bands. Right. Not, not, not August and Kid Creole, but the others. Not, yeah. not Suicide. Um, the others. Yeah, the, all <laughs> so, the others. Just, but you know, we can't. So, yeah, yeah. So, so you were also, um, without going into too much detail, but you'd also sort of engaged in that world of drugs. Yeah, you you know, it's interesting. I think it's, I never, I never liked drugs so much as I like the idea of them, the concept of them. They're like an accessory, like um, a Miles Davis box set. <laughs> of outtakes <laughs> yes you know it's it's a it's part of your identity you walk around with this under your arm yeah but, it's but it doesn't mean that you actually enjoy it i actually use that line i came up with it 
this week I was talking to my friend Adam Curtis and he loved it. <laughs> so it's actually recycled from a private conversation. Yes. Well, it's interesting with Adam Curtis because he made one of those brilliant series and he had the suicide um, yeah. track on it, didn't he? It's, it's, he used it twice. It, it, well, he did it live as well. Uh, Adam Curtis versus Massive Attack. And he had Massive Attack covered it and he had the suicide version dream baby dream yeah yeah and he used it quite a lot so that's yes it all makes sense now oh yeah well he was we were at university together right dear old adam yes he must be confused what to make next because there's so much news to try and unpick a narrative must be i know well he's he's coming out with something at the end of january oh good good and it's very very long I would imagine. I mean, how would you condense the last four years into anything? But um, so when it, when you finished the music business, you did lots of businesses with your dad in energy, didn't you? And more energy. Yes. Jesus, there were so many energy companies you had. Did you? Um, how did how did that just roughly compare to the music business? Did you manage? <laughs> did, 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 did the music by then had you managed to sort of think actually I better stop the drugs and just focus on the energy business, or did that help? Um, I don't know. That's awkward to talk about. We should cut cut that out. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But um. But but in terms of the rec- record business versus the oil and gas business, I liked the people I was working with the oil and gas business a lot yeah because here's what was interesting about it that was had had in common with the music business is that the best universities to get geology degrees and engineering degrees are state universities like lsu and um omis you know university of mississippi and and things like that so that the people in the oil and gas business it's not, it's the opposite of the banking world, say. You know, there wasn't anyone who'd gone to Ivy League schools. They were really exceptionally smart people from, um, you know, from regular backgrounds. Right. And that it has in common with the record business. So I like that about it a lot. Um, I love, I really like the people in it. Yes. And so, so that I was used to, and they're, and they're very smart. And, you know, there's this gray area, I alluded to it earlier, but let's say you make a totally great, brilliant record, um, like Dream Baby Dream, and it doesn't sell. Does that mean it wasn't a good record? You know, it, it, it's very hard to know. Like Christina's records, they never sold. But um, as I listen to them now, they're so full of vitality. I mean, I wish she could sing better. But, um, you know, there's, there isn't any of that in the, in, in, the, in the business world. But I would never have gone into something like banking. No. I, mean, I, would have, I would have loathed that. I've had to deal with bankers, and I have friends who are bankers. But, um, you know, 
it's artistic figuring out the, the great insight in our wind business was we, we, this was at the beginning of the wind business, before it was a big business. We laid, we, we took a map of America. We laid out where there's wind in America because there are wind maps. Then we laid out where there are transmission lines. And then we put in where there were Starbucks. Because if there was a Starbucks, you would have people who didn't want a wind farm near them because they were sort of not in my backyard. Although they would say that they were totally aligned with, um, you know, the idea of renewable energy. Yes. So that if it's just windy, anyone can build a wind farm there. And so you can't, you can't make a good profit because what it is, it's, it's whoever has the cheapest cost of capital, whoever can, um, you know, raise money that for the least will make the most money there. Whereas if you can secure land where it's very hard to permit a wind farm, then when you build your wind farm there, you will have someone who wants to a, an off taker, a utility to buy it, and you can make proper money. So that's very incredibly creative, that insight. Yes. You know, and that's someone who we will that was our, our head of development in our wind company who came up with that. So those things, or um, the way we figured out to buy seismic before it was even shot so that we could, you know, buy, buy, buy offshore blocks to drill before anyone else could. It's very, very creative. Whereas banking and securitizing mortgages <laughs> and extracting rent by being in between these two people or i mean that's not that's not creative or being a hedge fund i mean maybe it's creative but it's not i mean you have to admire all the people in silicon valley but the stuff that was the other reason i wanted to get out of new york is that after 1984 after four years of ronald reagan it had become impossible to live in because everyone was obsessed with being bankers and money yeah I mean, it, it had lost its, um, it, it, was it was no longer as cheap to live in, and it was losing its, uh, its identity as something exciting, yeah. something vital. So um, I guess that's what I would say about the energy business versus um, the record business. Yeah. So, so where does that leave you now? Are you in a position where you're... Well, I had a disaster in biomass it was a huge financial disaster and i decided that that was a sign that it was enough and so i i started a small publishing company which i'm very proud of called z books and you know i'm just um i'm just publishing i'm publishing four books this year fantastic and you know so that's what i'm doing blimey it's a it's a comic yeah because i was just kind of reading bits and pieces and it's like Wow, that's amazing! You know, you so so the 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 biomass energy not so good, but then the one where you sold to is it Sonnet for a... Sonat? Oh, oh, that was the oil and gas, and the wind business was hugely successful. Yes. So did it leave so... you at the end of the day, just like oh, where you started, or were you so like well, we've done better than we were, but blimey, what a journey! I need to sleep. No, but I need to sleep now. I'm sixty six. Yes. And are you, apart from the books, which are still impressive, are you sort of 
occasionally tempted to sort of put out a record or two? Well, I did one this year. Um, I mean, I'll send it to you, and then if you want to talk again after you hear that, yes, we can do that because I put everything I knew into it. Um, and it was such a disappointment that it didn't take off. And I have some theories about it, but um, but mm. we can discuss that after. But I think that would be helpful. I, I, I don't know how long your podcast is, you've got <laughs> a lot of material, but. I'm sure you edit anyway a lot. Yeah. So, right? Okay. Just before we do, we sort of do the uh, say, say uh, goodbye and do I'll the links. What would What would you? I mean, if you could say something to an 18 year old self, I just wondered what What would you would sort of have advice? I mean, because it's such a sort of interesting sort of journey you've taken. Well, I would say to find something you love where. Okay, no. Here's what, I, here's what I would say. I would say that the main barrier to entry when I entered the record business was how expensive it was to make records and how hard it was to secure distribution. Now it's incredibly cheap to make records and you can put them out yourself. So what I would do is I would make a record if you really have something to say. But know that if you don't, it will have no effect. <laughs> so that it all starts it all starts with the music and whether the music matters. You have to ask yourself, does this really matter? Does this need to exist? That's what I would always ask myself and what I still ask myself and what I ask myself about my books. Does this somehow enhance things? Yeah. Does it matter? And are you still able to hear music that, that sort of makes you think, God, this was really, still gives you that thrill that it did back in the late 60s and 70s? Well, the last rep, I, I don't know him, but he's my hero. There's a guy who has a label. I think it's called XL or XO. He has the XX and he has um, Adele on his label. Oh, yeah. But but he put out a record um, by Gil Scott Heron. And then, he, and then he put out a record by Bobby Womack in the last 10 years. And that Bobby Womack record, the first songs on it are the best thing I heard last decade. Yeah. It was... Um, uh, it, it it starts. Uh, uh, let me let me just tell you what, what what the song is called. Hold on. Um, oh, it's called Stupid, I think. And um, it starts with it starts with Gil Scott Heron saying that he wants to. Um, um, that he was watching a preacher who said that he'd found God and that God was broke and told him to raise $20 million. And then here, I'll, I'll play it to you so you can just hear the beginning.
it's the most it's the most amazing thing so it came out in 2012 mm. and that was the last record that totally totally blew my mind i mean i think this guy who owns this label i don't know his name but he was profiled in the new yorker i think he's extraordinary he's the I just don't like that much music nowadays, but his records are incredible. I'm, Adele's not really my thing, but I mean, I can respect how great she is. Yes. But um, but I love the XX and this Bobby, Wo the Gil Scott Heron record and the Bobby Womack record were, I mean, I would have been so proud if I had been, you know, made something like that. And I don't know that they sold very much either. <laughs> so um, yes, but, that, but they were they were remarkable. So um, and it's funny in the last year or two, I've started liking music less. I mean, current music less. There's there's a French singer called Benjamin Violet who I really love, mm -hmm. but um, but I'm. I'm listening to older stuff, which is kind of depressing. <laughs> I, ne I never listened to older stuff. I always knew what the latest stuff was. And do you still love soundtracks? Uh, not, no. No, because once I'd moved on to words. <laughs> it was it. There's no substitute. I mean, do I like the soundtrack to Guys and Dolls? Or The Sound of Music or Mary Poppins? Yes. I'm, I remember we were very impressed with the soundtrack to Taxi Driver and Mean Streets. I remember those yes. soundtracks were particularly haunting for that particular, but those particular films. So, um, yeah, I don't know who the, the composer is. But anyway, look, I will check that out. We've, we've got a buzz now for some reason. Hold on. I don't know what it is. Um, it's gone. Um, I will send you these two songs, and then if you want to do listen, to do any more to tie things up, yeah, or that, find things, then we can do that. Let's it's do really that. Easy. That would be brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. And, and um, it was lovely, Dave. It's so nice to meet you, and I hope to meet you in London because I'm getting vaccinated on January seventh. Fantastic. So, so by March, I can travel. I know we'll have our own little. I suppose we'll have to have some sort of sign don't we some sort of yeah. certificate yes, passport. a passport where where are you in england norwich norwich okay yeah 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 okay well look take care take care stay safe you too happy new year bye 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 okay that's it i love putting the end bits in just because it's so fumbly and difficult and awkward it makes me makes me laugh listening back. So there you go. I don't care. Right, that's it. That's the end of the interview. And a big thank you to Michael for giving me the, inter the time for that interview. Michael Zelka, yes. Z Records, check them out. They'll make you look cool. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's the C86 Show. All these have been in uh, archived. That's the word, archived. And find those on Pod, uh, yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might change your life. They probably won't. Anyway, have a great week and New Year. Brilliant. See you. Bye. <laughs>